What's up, everybody? My name is Athena, and you're here to listen to Vanished in the Valley. Today, I'm going to tell you about an experiment that had the approval of a government that placed foster children with known pedophiles. I'm not even joking. It's totally fucking documented. And this whole program was run by a renowned sexologist. So I'm going to kind of tell you this story through the eyes of one of the victims of this program. I'm going to give you some of the background on some of the predators the government used. And I'll also tell you about this quote-unquote renowned sexologist that was in charge of this experiment. But before we get into all that insanity, I'm going to tell you guys about some stuff that's kind of trending in the quote-unquote mainstream media going to tell you about some government fuckery, and I'm going to update you on this whole free speech situation that the Biden bitches have basically declared war on. So sit back and get ready for some hard truths and hidden facts. So I don't know if you guys have heard, but Dr. Brittany Cobia wrote in a quote-unquote heart-wrenching Facebook post that She's admitting young, healthy people to the hospital with very serious COVID infections. And that's a quote. She goes on to say, one of the last things they do before they're intubating is beg me for the vaccine. I hold their hand and I tell them I'm sorry, but it's too late. A few days later, when I call the time of death, I hug the family members and I tell them the best way to honor their loved one is get the jab. This fucking bitch. First of all, this is like a prime example of don't believe everything doctors say because they have a fucking agenda or they're being basically led around on a leash by their fucking hospital administrators that have no medical degree. They're just fucking business majors. Or maybe they have some fucking, I don't know, like ill-informed opinion because they're buying into the propaganda. I don't know. I can't account for why so many medical professionals have discounted their Hippocratic Oath. So, to disprove Dr. Brittany Cobia, go to the National Center for Health Statistics and enter her home state, which is Alabama. Now, crazy enough, looking at these statistics, there is not one reported death in the age ranges of 0 to 17 or 18 to 29. So, Brittany, what the fuck are you talking about? Uh, is someone paying you to say this bullshit? And did you not realize how easy it would be to disprove? So, of course, the mainstream media latched onto her original blubbering statement and put it all over the fucking mainstream media. It's like fucking everywhere. But I haven't even seen a retraction once in the mainstream media with this information provided by the National Center for Health Statistics. Fucking shocker. I know. Crazy. And the funny thing is, Facebook hasn't fact-checked this quote-unquote doctor. Nobody has fact-checked all of these mainstream media sites that are repeating this garbage, this doctor said. But this is like literally the definition of misinformation. Now, with misinformation, there doesn't have to be some, like, bad, ill intent. That's disinformation. So there is a fucking difference here. Misinformation can be accidentally passed on. Disinformation is you know it's bad information, but you're passing it on anyway. 
So those are two big distinctions. This fucking Jen Paskey or whatever her name is, Biden's bitch, is literally calling for an all-out social media ban on accounts that post misinformation. Well, Jen, going back on your Twitter feed, we found some misinformation posts. What about that post about Hunter Biden and how you found all these intel officers that are saying it was actually just a Russian hoax? That's misinformation. This chick, whether she knew it was wrong or not, knew by posting that information on Twitter, it would go out to tens of thousands of people who would then spread that information. Fucking textbook definition, spreading misinformation. But she hasn't even fact-checked, not at all. So, it, I mean, none of this should come to a surprise. Uh, I think uh, there's all kinds of lawsuits right now going on against big tech for them basically trampling all over the First Amendment, censoring anybody that goes against their narrative. I'm just wondering, like, did the Democrats buy off big tech or did big tech buy off the Democrats? Because, I mean, I know Facebook lobbies with tens of millions of dollars to the Democrats every single year. But, I mean, I think there's a very clear case and argument that they are colluding. I can't wait to see how this California lawsuit goes through because Alex Padilla and the state were collaborating with Facebook to censor people that were going against the Democratic narrative. And I'll say it again, like for the five billionth time, I'm not a Democrat. I'm not a Republican. I think the whole fucking system is rotten from the core on out. There's no fixing it. It needs to be burnt down and started again. So moving on from the lying doctors and biting bitches, I just want to let you guys know, check this out. On August 11th, FEMA has several quote-unquote drills planned throughout the United States. These drills happen to coincide with the World Economic Forum Cyber Attack Exercise. So that's known right now as the Cyber Polygon Exercises, which actually went live today and coincidentally enough, tens of thousands of websites went down. I'm not sure what that's all about. And speaking of websites, the one that John McAfee has got going on, you know, the whole kill switch situation. So it was updated a couple days ago, and it's a picture of a diamond mine in Sierra Leone. And today it was actually updated. And all it says is secure live video uplink. So as of right now, there's about 10, 9, 10 hours left on the kill switch. Who knows what's actually going to happen? I mean, if this is a John McAfee, this dude is fucking unpredictable, and I have absolutely no idea where this could go. But the website has been relentlessly attacked since it went up. There's a bunch of the DDoS attacks, which is basically just zombie computers kind of going to the website and overloading the website until it crashes. All kinds of crazy shit's been going down with it. So I don't know, guys, maybe uh, the next episode we'll have an update with some three terabytes of dirt on these politicians and the elite. So speaking of new episodes, next week I'm going on a vacay. I'm going up to Richardson's Grove. It's like this old growth redwood forest. There's trees that are over a thousand years old. There's trees you could fucking drive through. That's how big they are. It's basically just like a Pacific rainforest. Fucking beautiful and amazing. 
Only problem is I got a broken foot. <laughs> so I'm not sure uh, what I'll really be able to do besides hang out and camp, really. But even hanging out in the forest, not doing much, is great. I need to get out of the city and away from all the madness. So I'm not going to be online or on Instagram for a week. So sorry. But speaking of Instagram, super shocker, I have an Instagram story for you. So, Instagram has, like, gone hard fucking core on my shadow ban. My account had gotten up to the reach of 51,000 accounts. And as of right now, they have literally lowered it to 4,000 accounts. Now, even though they've shadow banned me and they're not letting my shit get out, somehow I keep getting more followers. Maybe it's the whole spitting out the hard truths and hidden facts thing. Hmm... So one last thing before we get to the state-sponsored pedophilia and foster children. Just want to let you guys know about the House Democrats blocking a bill to declassify intel on COVID origins. So by a vote of 216 to 207, Democrats in the House of Representatives blocked consideration of a bill that would require the Director of National Intelligence to declassify information related to the origins of the Wuhan coronavirus pandemic, specifically information about any role the Wuhan Institute of Virology may have played in the pandemic's outbreak. It's like, what the actual fuck? What are they trying to hide? What What's left to hide at this point? We already know that Ralph Barrick basically gave the technology to the Wuhan clinic. We also know that this virus has been modified to go from humans to animals and that it's kind of been spliced with different HIV type viruses, which I'm not even going to get into because it's fucking super deep down the rabbit hole, but we know the virus has been manipulated. So what, what else is there to fucking hide? It's not even like a controversial bill. I just, I don't even understand why they would want to hide any information that is collected during this investigation. Huh. Demon rats. Democrats. So, change of subject time. We are now going to get into what has been referred to as the Kintler experiment. Now, this is a super fucked up story. We're going to be talking about child sex abuse and child sex abuse that was sanctioned by the government. So, and this is not something that happened in the way distant past. This program was finally terminated in 2003. Yes, 2003. So, let's kind of go back and start at the beginning. We're going to go back to 2015 when it was revealed that the Berlin city government, yes, yeah, so Berlin as in Germany, that the Berlin city government had supported a program that placed homeless teenagers with known and convicted pedophiles. This whole experiment, if you can call it that, I mean, I call it like uh, what an exercise in destroying children's lives, an exercise in letting pedophiles have free reign over children. I mean, call it what you will, but it's fucked up on every single level. So a guy named Helmut Kintler, who was a quote-unquote sex researcher from Hanover University, 
started this experiment back in 1969. And his whole thing on this, what his whole thesis was, is that he wanted to prove that wayward teenagers could be rehabilitated back into society by living with pedophiles, who would be sure to care well for them. Although Kentler himself admitted this stemmed from less-than-good-natured intentions, then the fact that they had sexual relations with the children. So in many cases, these kids are between the ages of 13 and 15. And it was noted some of these kids were street kids, some of these kids were addicted to drugs, and some of the kids were quote-unquote prostitutes. I mean, I don't know how children become prostitutes. Uh, I think there should be maybe a different word for it. Because, you know, a prostitute is a situation where one person is selling some sort of sexual service to another person. And since children can't technically consent to sex, let alone selling sex, it definitely should have its own classification. In 1997, Kintler was quoted as saying, I have found in the vast majority of the experience that pederastic relationships can have a very positive effect on the personality development of a boy, especially if the pedastry is a true mentor of the boy. I don't know where this fucking guy made up this bullshit from, but as we all know, sex with children is bad for the mental and psychological development of the abused child. So obviously the guy was just cooking the books because the only thing that could get his dick hard was abusing children. Fucking insane. So after his little experiment kind of came to light, a woman by the name of Teresa Nentwig was appointed by the city authorities to investigate the extent of the government's involvement in this program. Teresa went on to say, Men who had been convicted of sexual contact with minors were appointed by the Berlin leadership as guardians. Children and young people who had lived on the street before that had to, quote, pay for a warm bed, good food, and clean clothes by engaging in sexual relationships with their caregivers. So in this whole investigation, it is actually still going on. Because basically, Kintler took few notes and basic details such as how many children were actually handed over to the pedophiles and how much funding the city provided are still unknown. After all of this information had came to light back in 2015, Nettenwig was actually contacted by one of the victims of this whole scheme. And I'm just going to kind of share with you guys his experience. And this is a part where you have to put on your big boy, big girl panties because it's about to get disgusting. Marco is a 37-year-old German man who had grown up in foster care. Now, the foster father that he had been placed with had frequently taken him to Kintler's house. Apparently, one day, Marco was sitting at the kitchen table and he came across the Berlin newspaper that had a picture of Kintler himself. Marco says the first thing he noticed was the man's lips. They were thin and almost non-existent, a trait that Marco had always found repellent. He was surprised to read the professor, Helmut Kentler, had been one of the most influential sexologists in Germany. He went on to read that beginning in the late 60s, Kentler had passed neglected children in foster homes 
run by pedophiles. The experiment was authorized and financially supported by the Berlin Senate. He says after reading the article, he didn't react. He says he just pushed it aside. I didn't react emotionally. I did what I do every day. Nothing, really. I sat around in front of the computer. So Marco kind of goes on to describe some of the problems he's having later in life. He says he had a job once, but after a few days, he quit. He says whenever a stranger made an expression that reminded him of his foster father, an engineer named Fritz Henkel, he had the sensation that he was not actually alive, that his heart had stopped beating, and the color had drained from the world. When he tried to speak, it felt as if his voice didn't belong to him. But several months after actually reading the newspaper article, he decided to look up the phone number for Teresa Nettenwig. And she's the one I just told you about that was basically investigating the city. He says he felt both curious and ashamed. When she answered the phone, he identified himself as a quote-unquote unaffected person. He told her that his foster father had spoken with Kentler on the phone every week. In ways that Marco had never understood, Kentler, a psychologist and a professor of social education at the University of Hanover, had seemed deeply invested in his upbringing. Now, this is when Nettenwig kind of gets the shock of her life. She had assumed that these experiments had ended in 1970s. But much to her chagrin, Marco told her that he had lived in this foster home up until 2003. Nettenwig goes on to say, I was totally shocked. She remembers Marco saying several times, you're the first person I've ever told. This is the first time I've ever told my story. Now, as a child, he says he took it for granted that the way he was treated was normal. He says such things happen, he told himself. The world is like this. It's a eat or be eaten. And now, he said, I realize the state had been watching. Now, Marco wasn't the only child placed in the pervert's home. He also had a foster brother named Sven. They lived together in Hinkle's home for 13 years. So at the time Marco was assigned to live with Hinkle, Hinkle was a 47-year-old single man who supplemented his income as a foster parent by repairing jukeboxes and other electronics. Hinkle had been fostering kids since 1973. And apparently a teacher was quoted as saying he was, quote unquote, always looking for contact with boys. Six years after that, a caseworker said that Hinkle appeared to be, quote unquote, in a homosexual relationship with one of his foster sons. When a public prosecutor launched an investigation, Helmut Kentler, who was the sexologist, basically kind of interjected himself into the investigation and called himself Hinkle's permanent advisor and kind of intervened on Hinkle's behalf. And that is a pattern that is going to repeat itself throughout the years this pervert was a foster father. A lot of times, Kentler would issue what he called a quote-unquote expert opinion. He said that he had come to know Hinkle through a research project and commended Hinkle on his parenting skills and disparaged a psychologist who invaded the privacy of his home, making quote-unquote wild interpretations. Uh, you mean calling out a pervert predator for fucking his foster son? Hmm. 
So basically nothing ever happened in regards to the investigations into Hinkle. It just made it so Hinkle was allowed to keep getting foster boys put with him. Which kind of brings us back to Sven. The police had found him in a subway station in Berlin. He was sick with hepatitis, begging for money, noting that Sven had quote-unquote likely never experienced a positive parent-child relationship. The Youth Welfare Office searched for a foster home in Berlin, and they said Mr. Hinkle seemed to be ideally suited to this difficult task. Fucking insane. So Marco goes on to kind of describe the years that him and Sven spent with Hinkle. He says Hinkle would come into his room asking to cuddle, or he waited for him while he brushed his teeth before bed, and Marco said he had to comply. He says, I just accepted it out of loyalty because I didn't know anything else. I didn't think what was happening was good, but I thought it was normal. I thought of it a little bit like food. People had different tastes in food, the same way some people have different tastes in sexuality. Marco knew if Sven's bedroom door was open and he wasn't in there, then he was being sexually abused by Hinkle and Hinkle's bedroom. He says that him and Sven never talked about the abuse. He basically says it was completely taboo subject. So over the years, Kintler and Hinkle kind of double teamed judges, youth welfare office, the children's parents, anybody that came in the way that had the opportunity to try to find out what was going on, they stopped it right away. So they just manipulated the system for decades. In a letter, Kintler advised Youth Welfare Office that if a psychological assessment had to be done on any of the children, he would perform it himself. He uh, <laughs> kind of concedingly wrote, Insights beyond my findings are not to be expected. I'm just like, God damn, these people just had the wool pulled over their eyes so bad. And for so many years, it's like a judge never thought this was strange that anytime that he would try to talk to these kids alone in his chambers, fucking Hinkle would stand outside of the door and scream and interrupt the judge and basically scream, if you're being threatened, call out. And the judge even said Marco sounded as if he had been coached. It's just fucking insane that nobody, like these judges, nobody put two and two together and realized there was a predator harming children sanctioned by the city with a sexologist at the helm. I mean, you can't make this shit up. There was a 2020 report that was actually commissioned by the Berlin Senate and the University of Hiddelstrom concluded that, quote unquote, the Senate also ran foster homes or shared flats for young Berliners with pedophile men in other parts of West Germany. The 58 page report was preliminary and vague. The author said there were about a thousand unsorted files in the basement of a government building that they had been unable to read. There was no names revealed, but the authors wrote that these foster homes were run by sometimes powerful men who lived alone and who were given this power by academia, research institutions, and other pedagogical environments that accepted, supported, or even lived out pedophile stances. The report concluded that some quote-unquote Senate actors had been part of the network 
while others had merely tolerated the foster homes because of icons of educational reform policies supported such arrangements. So as the years go by, Marco says he just tolerated Hinkle's assaults. But as he began going through puberty, he said, I started to hate him. So he spent hours each day lifting weights so that he would be strong enough to actually defend himself when Hinkle would try to force himself on him. One night when Hinkle tried to fondle him, Marco hit his hand. Hinkle seemed startled, but didn't say anything. He just walked away. From that point on, Hinkle stopped trying to sexually molest Marco, but he became super punitive. He said at night, he locked the door to the kitchen so Marco couldn't eat. If Hinkle felt Marco had acted out, he would physically hit him. So it's like there's sexual abuse, there's food deprivation, there's physical abuse. This poor kid was literally just put through the ringer. His mind was never developed. Marco says that he was never taught to critically think. So when he turned 18, it never even occurred to him to move out of the home. Marco was 21 years old in 2003 and still living with Hinkle when the foster authorities finally decided to shut him down. Marco said he had nowhere to live. He spent three nights sleeping on benches in the park. But finally, with help of a charity that assists homeless youths, he eventually moved into a subsidized apartment. He said he sometimes stole from grocery stores to eat. I didn't know how the world functioned. I didn't even know that you needed to pay for the electricity that comes out of a socket. He says he wakes up several times in the middle of the night, which is a habit from his time back with Hinkle. He says he would check his body to quote-unquote see if everything is still where it should be, and I was still existing. He said he spent so much time by himself that he had trouble constructing sentences. His foster brother Sven lived alone in a small apartment in Berlin, too. But unlike Marco, he always stayed in touch with Hinkle. Sven says, I always thought I owed the man something. Marco and Sven lived as they had as adolescents. They spent the day on the computer watching TV, rarely speaking to anyone. Sven, who has experienced periods of severe depression since he was a child, still lives in what he calls a fortress of solitude. And he didn't want to talk about his past. He says, I don't have any more strength, but I can assure you that everything my brother told you about our time in the foster home is the truth. So Marco said since his time leaving Hinkle's house, he said he felt like he was becoming a monster. He says it didn't go quite toward criminality, but there was a destructiveness, a lack of empathy. When he was 26, he was on a train in Berlin and noticed three men staring at him. Without even making a conscious decision, Marco found himself beating them up. He said, I should have said, hey, what are you looking at? But instead, I immediately just attacked them. I noticed I actually wanted to kill them. One of the men did end up in the emergency room, and Marco realized how much his behavior resembled that of his foster father. It was a hinkle reaction, he said. I was a product. I was turning into the thing that he had made me. Now, a lot of times that does happen. You find that abused children then turn out to be abusers themselves. After Marco left Hinkle's residence, he only had contact with him two times. The first time, when Marco was in his mid-twenties, Hinkle suddenly called. 
He appeared to have developed some sort of dementia. He asked if Marco had remembered to feed the rabbits. The next time was in 2015 when his wife, Emma, was pregnant with their first child. Marco drove to a clinic in Brandenburg where he had heard Hinkle was in hospice, dying of cancer. Marco opened the door to Hinkle's room. He saw Hinkle lying in bed, groaning in pain. He had a long, wizard-like beard and looked to Marco as if he were possessed. Marco gazed at him for less than five seconds, long enough to confirm that he was actually dying. He then turned around, closed the door, and walked out of the hospital. Hinkle died the next day, and Marco says he entered a state of grief so fluid and expansive that it wasn't until a few weeks after Hinkle's death that the sense of being haunted began to recede. The freedom came slowly, Marco says. It was like a hunger that grows stronger and stronger. I don't know how to say it, but it was the first time that I figured out that I'm a living a life with a billion different possibilities. I could have been anything. My inner voice became stronger. My intuition that I don't have to live my life the way he taught me. That I can keep on going. As of right now, Marco and Sven are involved in litigation against the city of Berlin for knowingly placing them with a pedophile. And apparently, the woman I was telling you about a little bit earlier, Teresa Dettenwig, said in 2020 that she had no future in the university because it's very hard to have success with this sort of subject. I'm criticizing the academic world. Due to that, her university contract had not been renewed, and she blamed the premature end of her academic career in part on her decision to research Kentler. She says, I'm a political scientist, and people are always asking, what is political about this topic? Jesus Christ. So, Netwig and her former university are now splitting the cost, some 6,000 euros, for a German academic press to publish what would have been her thesis. In the book, which comes out this year in September, she reveals that Kentler, the single father of three adopted sons and several foster children, appeared to have been conducting his own informal version of the experiment that the Berlin Senate had authorized. And not surprising at all, it was determined later that two of Kintler's foster sons had divulged that Kintler had sexually abused them. Kintler's experiment seemed to rest on the idea that some children are fundamentally second class. Their outlook so compromised that any kind of love is a gift, a proposition that his colleagues apparently accepted too. It's like, what the fuck is wrong with the world of academia? I could literally probably have an episode that's four hours long on that subject, but it's like they just stonewalled Nuttenwig at every turn, and in the university just kind of cut all ties with her because they didn't want to stain the name of a fucking child molester, Kintler. The city government of Berlin has since set up a hotline for any former participants in the quote-unquote Kintler experiment who would like to share their experiences. So it's like investigations are still ongoing and it looks like litigation is still all wrapped up in the courts. So as of right now, I'll be definitely looking for any updates and I will let you guys know how this litigation turns out. But... It's like, this is just one more case to show that a lot of adults think 
having sex with children is okay. And they occupy all walks of life. You never know. They always seem to prey upon children that come from broken homes or abusive backgrounds. So if you suspect anyone of child abuse, there is a lot of help out there. You can actually go to childhelp.org and they can give you a phone number for some sort of child protective service in your area. That is childhelp.org. So that's about it for this episode, guys. I know it was a super fucked up one, and I know it's hard to wrap minds around that actual government would uh, knowingly place children with pedophiles. But it happened. There's court documents to prove it, and all of the experiment papers from Kentler that, you know, these uh, investigators were able to find, which they said it was super difficult, and they're sure they didn't even find all of them. But uh, that's about it. And as I always tell you, be aware and don't forget your pepper spray. Ciao, ciao.